All right, so once again, uh, in our class here on Sunday mornings this year, we've been going through and looking at different chapters of the Bible. If you recall last year, we all voted on our favorite chapter of the Bible. And so that's what we're kind of going through. Um, this week, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we were in Romans chapter 1 last week, but this week we'll be in Romans chapter number 8. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about some of the um, important information you need to know whenever you're approaching the book of Romans to have a good understanding of the context. Um, Paul, the, uh, the uh, human penman that was used here, uh, wrote this epistle. Uh, more than likely, he was probably in uh, Corinth whenever he wrote this, uh, this letter. Um, and the difference between this letter that Paul wrote and many of his other letters was usually whenever Paul was writing to a church, it was to address maybe some specific doctrinal issues in the church. Uh, maybe it was perhaps to uh, address maybe some particular behavior in the church that Paul was trying to correct. But the book of Romans is different. He's not writing to uh, address a church or some kind of issue in the church or, or anything of that nature. It's more uh, what you find in the book of Romans is it's really a book about the gospel of God. Amen. And that's kind of the theme of the book of Romans. As we discuss and as we've actually participated in our church here, uh, many times whenever you're trying to get the gospel to people, um, you'll give them maybe a gospel track. Um, you know, sometimes it's not always, uh, you're not always able to give them an entire Bible, an entire canon of scripture. So people will give out John and Romans. They'll give them the book of John and they'll give them the book of Romans. Well, why do we do that? Because these are foundational books of the Bible. It's been said that if you can understand the book of Romans, all the New Testament will be open to you. Yeah. And if you don't understand the book of Romans, you're probably going to have some difficulty maybe interpreting or understanding some other parts of scripture. And so it's important that we understand uh, the book of Romans and what's, what, is, what its intention is. Um, as, we, as we mentioned last week, there are some themes that repeat in the book of Romans again and again. Um, we see that the, uh, the name of God is mentioned 153 times in the book of Romans alone. That's once every 46 words God's name is being used in some, in some way. And so we see that this is a, a book of the Bible that almost more than any other book is filled with God and his name. It's also uh, many times you'll see, and we'll look at it in, in Romans chapter 8 today specifically, you'll see a few other words repeated, one of them being the law. And we'll talk about what that, what that is in a moment. It also, many times you'll see the word repeated again and again, the spirit, uh, and also faith and sin. So these are the themes of the book of Romans. It's the book of the gospel of God. It deals with law, it deals with the spirit, it deals with faith, and it deals with sin. And so that's what we find um, being uh, taught to us here in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 8, you see that Paul kind of changes course um, from maybe what he was speaking about in chapters 1 through 7, where it was filled with, well, if you recall last week, uh, whenever we looked at Romans chapter number 1, and we got down to the end of that chapter, and you see that, the, uh, that uh, Paul, Paul begins to describe a, a culture, a society, a group of people that continue to reject God, and because they continue to reject God, God turns them over to a reprobate mind. In Romans chapter 3, we find these fam the famous scripture that says that the wages of sin is death. Uh, we find also in, um, in, in the early part of the book of Romans that all have sinned, that all have come short of the glory of God. And so you see through the first seven chapters, there is uh, this repeated theme about the guilt of man before God. And, and, and you see the culmination of that in chapter number 7. And we'll look at that just very briefly um, as we kind of begin to look at Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 8, you see a pivot. You see a change. And Paul is changing the focus from the, the guilt of man before God, those that are lost without hope, without Christ, 
that have rejected God's salvation. They're under, they're under um, condemnation before God. And you see that Paul then shifts his perspective beginning in chapter number 8. And he begins to talk about the blessings of those that have trusted in Christ. And he begins this part, this section in chapter number 8 and verse number 1. And he kind of sets the, the road map for the destination of where we're going to be going here in Romans chapter number 8. He says in verse number 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So now you see Paul is changing his, his direction from saying, uh, listen, we, we've discussed and we've, we've tried to explain how all man is guilty before God. The Jew, the Gentile, it doesn't matter uh, where you, what time you lived in, what place you lived in, we're all guilty before God. We all, uh, we all have been given a conscience by God so we know what's right and wrong. Uh, you, you don't, you don't, ha you don't uh, have to be saved to know what's right and wrong. Uh, uh, you, 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 you know that intuitively whenever you do something wrong, your conscience will convict you. And that's a gift from God. Uh, and so we're all guilty before God. But now Paul begins to talk about those that have accepted salvation and they are now free. They have freedom in Christ. And that's what we see explained to us in, in Romans chapter number 8. Um, there's an interesting comparison. Paul uses this word, therefore very frequently in his letters and in his writings. And this is certainly not the first time he used, he's used the word therefore in, in, a, in chapter 8. And he says that there's therefore now no condemnation. That word condemnation, it means to be found guilty. It means to be under judgment. And he's saying that if you are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that have accepted Christ. But it's an interesting comparison to what we see in Romans chapter 3. If you'll turn back just a few pages in your Bible... Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20, we see Paul uses the same word. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so Paul is making this comparison. He's saying, listen, if you're trusting in, if you're trusting in keeping the law to, 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 to provide salvation for you, you're going to fail miserably because you cannot be justified by the law. And he even tells us what the purpose of the law is. He says at the end of this verse, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So uh, God gave the law in the Old Testament. God gave the law um, knowing that man could not keep the law. If you, if, you, you've read, if you read the Old Testament and you see all the, the, um, the ceremonial laws, all the cultural laws, all the moral laws that God gives, there's no one that can keep all those laws. And so what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to show us that we cannot keep the law. That we're incapable of that. That we cannot be good enough to earn salvation. And so the purpose of the law was there to show us that we cannot obtain salvation through our own effort. It's impossible. You cannot do it. No one has ever kept the whole law. Just look at the Ten Commandments alone. And that's only ten. There's, there's, I think there's 336 laws given in the Old Testament. But let's just look at the Ten Commandments. How many of those can we say that we've kept perfectly? I mean, just read through, read through what they say. I mean, have, is there no one here that's ever had an idol in their life? I mean, and maybe you didn't have like a, an idol of Buddha, but you've never put anything before God in your entire life. No, none of us could say that we're innocent of that. Uh, the Bible says that we shouldn't bear false witness. How many of us could say, I've never told a lie? I think we'd all be guilty of that. And that's just two. I'm sure if we went through every single one of those uh, line by line, we would find that we are guilty before God. Why? Because the law reveals that to us. Uh, uh, you don't know you're speeding unless you see a speed limit sign. Right? You know, you can be driving along thinking everything's fine, and all of a sudden you see, oh, it's actually 45, not 60. 
I thought it was 60. I was driving fine until I saw the speed limit sign. The law is there to tell us that we're in violation of the law. And so Paul was saying, listen, if you're trying to justify yourself through the deeds of the law, it will end in death. But in chapter 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. The, the condemnation is you've been given a sentence. You've been found guilty. You've been convicted. The judges give, handed down the sentence. That's what condemnation means. And the Bible says, Paul here in Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for the Christian. There is no sentence hanging over your head. You don't have to worry about standing before the judge one day. All that is gone. All that has been put away. Now, interestingly enough, let's, let's pay attention to what it doesn't say. As a Christian, it says there's no condemnation. and I'm thankful for that. But this is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that there's no sin. Because I still have sin. Amen. It doesn't say that there's still not mistakes. Because I still make mistakes. It doesn't say that there's uh, no failures in my life. Because there are still failures. But let me tell you this morning, the Bible says there's no condemnation. Because you're, exactly, you cannot be convicted. You've been found innocent before God. Not because of my own good deeds and because I'm so great and because I kept the law and because I'm so religious. No, no, no. In spite of all those things, I can be saved. And we may suffer consequences of the sin in this life, and we certainly do. If you're a child of God and you're disobedient and you commit sin willingly, knowingly, rebelliously, you'll face consequences for that in this life. But you're not under condemnation before God. Your salvation is secure. Paul is, Paul is communicating to us that your salvation is not about you and your performance. Your salvation is something that's taken care of by Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so we have freedom from judgment. In verses 1 through 4, we see this truth that we have freedom from judgment as a Christian. That we will not stand before God in judgment. Guilty of our sin. Now, the Bible does teach us that there is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where, as a Christian, you will be judged, but not based upon your sin, not based upon your evil deeds or your wrongdoings, but you'll be judged upon what you did with the talents God gave you in your life, with the opportunities that God gave you. What did you do with those things? But it will not be judgment of sin. It will be a judgment on rewarding. It will be to determine your rewards in heaven one day. So we see here, first of all, we have freedom from judgment. And in verse number two, we see that the law cannot claim you. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made, us, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So he says, not only is there no condemnation, that you have no sentence that you're going to have to stand before God because you're saved, but also the law of sin and death has no power over you. The law of, the law of, the law of death uh, comes for all men. Unless Jesus doesn't come back soon, I don't know if that, I think it's going to be pretty soon, but let's just say that Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime. We're all going to die physically one day, but the Bible talks about a second death in the book of Revelation. And this is not a physical death, this is a spiritual death. And this is the, this is the, uh, the law, the spiritual law that God has created. This is the law. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death. Just as much as there's a law of gravity, that if I was to drop this bottle and it would fall to the ground because of the law of gravity, and you can't break that law of gravity, you can't stop that bottle from, from falling by trying to change gravity itself, you can't change that. The same thing is true, those, the, the spiritual laws that God gives. And one of those spiritual laws is the wages of sin is death. And if you go into eternity without 
the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ, you will face the law of sin and death. But Paul tells us as Christians, those that are saved, that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that the law of sin and death cannot claim you because they are defeated. They've been defeated by Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, it's all gone because Jesus Christ overcame death and the grave. And he's provided, a, 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 he's provided for us an opportunity to be saved. And so we are no longer bound to the law of sin and death the way that we were before when we were lost. We are dead to those laws. If you look just on the, maybe on the other side of the page in your Bible, it, as I said, Paul kind of makes a transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And he, he, there's a very, very famous portion of scripture where Paul talks about, you know, the things that I know I should do, that I know that are right, I don't ever seem to do those. And the things that I know that are wrong, that I shouldn't do, those are things I continue to seem like it, I, I, I stumble and I continue to do those things. And he makes this comment here in chapter 7. He says, uh, verse number uh, 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? from the body of this death who shall deliver me from this law of death and sin this uh it's i've been told that whenever paul made this comment he was referring to a common punishment back in those days that if you if you killed someone in rome if you murdered someone one of the ways they would punish you is they would take the body of the person that you killed and they would and they would bind it to your body and what would happen is that body, it, was, it would be, begin to deteriorate and decompose. And obviously, you know, we can get real graphic here this morning. You'd, there'd be like flies and maggots and all kinds of insects beginning to eat this body that you're bound to. And eventually what happens is that body begins to overtake your body. And, it begin, and you die as a result of this being tied to this body. And, and, and what I've been told is whenever Paul made this comment, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He was talking about this physical body is attached to my spiritual body. And, and I just feel like I'm, I, I'm, I'm continuing to fall backwards. And I feel like I'm being overcome by this death and by this sin. But the very last verse in this chapter, he gives us the key to how to overcome that. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then in verse number 8, I mean, chapter number 8, he begins to talk about that we are free from this death. That we, can be, that we can be separated, that we can be freed from this law of death and sin in our life. And we are free from this judgment of the law. So the law cannot claim us in verse number 2, but also the law cannot condemn us in verse number 3. For what the law could not do, which is it can't save you. You can't earn salvation by being a good person, by keeping all the Ten Commandments, because you can't keep the Ten, ten Commandments. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, meaning my flesh is not strong enough to fulfill and live out all the commandments that God gave us. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. So not only can sin no longer, or the law can no longer claim us, but the law can no longer condemn us. The law cannot save. The only thing the law can do is condemn. That's the, only, that's the only thing the Old Testament can do. All it can do is show us how we failed. That's all that it can do. It cannot save. And we are dead to these, sin, these laws. And we are free from the condemnation of the law because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and paid our price. Because he did what we could not do. He lived a perfect life. He, now, interesting, pay attention, it didn't say that he came in sinful flesh, but in the likeness, he came with the same, the same, uh, the same um, 
restrictions that we have. He, he, he had to eat. He had to drink. He had to sleep. He, he got tired. He got weary. His muscles ached. He, uh, he had bad mornings. But, 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 but despite all that, he never sinned. He never committed one sin. He came in the same, very, the same likeness, the same frailty as you and I. Um, uh, the, the, the same temptations that we have, he had. But he never gave in to those. He never committed sin. And because he was able to do that, we can now be free from the condemnation of that sin and that law. And the law can no longer condemn us. But not only can it no longer condemn us in verse number, in verse number four, it can no longer control us. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And this is the, this is the, the example of the life of a Christian. You're either walking in the spirit or you're walking in the flesh. And what Paul is telling us is we no longer are bound where we are, we are slaves to the flesh. We've been freed from that. We've been delivered from that. And now we can walk in the spirit. What I'm saying this morning is if you find yourself struggling with sin, that's not God's fault. God has provided a way through his son to get victory over death and sin and the grave. And if we're walking in, in the flesh, it's not because that's the way that God intended things to be. It's because of our weaknesses, because we're not, we're, well, this is what it is, because we think we're so strong we can do it ourselves. Well, I just got to be better. Well, I just got to, I just got to read my Bible more. I just got to pray more. I just have to focus more on serving others. And we're trying to do all this in the flesh and never resting in what Jesus Christ has already done. And what Paul is saying is if you put your faith in him, you're free. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment hanging over you. And so the law cannot control us. The law cannot produce holiness in your life. The Spirit produces holiness in your life by walking in the Spirit consistently day after day. And we cannot obey through efforts of the flesh. It's not through trying harder or turning over a new leaf or giving my best or pulling myself up by my, by, by my bootstraps. None of that stuff will work. You all just, it'll all fail. Trust me, I know I, I have the t-shirt. It won't work. We must, we must rely upon the Spirit to empower us. And we do that by every day surrendering and saying, God, if I go out this door today and I try to do it in my own power, I will fail. I need you. I need you to help me. And so we see in verses one through four that we have freedom from the law. Not only do we have freedom from the law, but in verses five through 17, we have freedom from defeat. We don't have to live a defeated life as a Christian in verses uh, 5 through 17. Let's read this uh, here this morning. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in this flesh cannot please God. So in these verses here, what Paul, he's, he's making a comparison here, these verses. He's trying, to, he's trying to explain to us the difference between being lost and being saved. He's not comparing a faithful Christian versus a carnal, immature, sinful Christian. He's comparing a saved person to a lost person in these verses. And he's comparing, he's saying in verse number five, he's saying the, 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 the carnal man, the lost man, lives after the flesh. Those things that interest him and please him and, and provide pleasure to him. and The things, that, inter- the things that, that they want to do with their life. This is what the carnal man does. They do things that serve the flesh. But the saved person does things that serve the spirit. 
He's making a comparison here. I wonder this morning how many of us would, if we could categorize our lives into our behaviors, how many of those are to serve the flesh versus the spirit? Fulfill, you will fulfill the desires of one or the other. You will do one or the other. You will fulfill the desires of the flesh or you will fulfill the desires of the spirit. But you'll do one or the other. Every single one of us will. And so he makes this comparison between flesh and spirit. He also makes a comparison between death and life in verse number six. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. And so here again we see the comparison. He's saying those that are, that are, that are living their life submitted to Jesus Christ, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, have life. But those that live to themselves, that live to flesh, they only have death to look forward to. In verse number 7, he makes a comparison between being at peace with God or being at enmity with, against God. Because the carnal mind, verse number 7, is enmity against God. You're at war. You're fighting. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So here again, if you were to, uh, if you were to look at the life of a lost person, and don't misunderstand me. Uh, a lost person can do just as many good things as a saved person can do. And a saved person can do just as many terrible things as a lost person can do. You can do the exact same things being lost or being saved. There's, there, there, the, the, the behaviors um, can sometimes overlap, but the spiritual life is completely different. One person is at war with God. They're fighting against God. They're fighting against God's will. They're fighting against God's commandments. They're fighting against God's moral code that he's given to us. And then there's, there, there are those that are at peace with God, that although we may not, we may not do it perfectly, and although the, we may stumble and fall, we ask forgiveness, we repent, and we turn our hearts back to God whenever he corrects us. And so we see those that are at war with God versus those that are at peace with God. And then it goes on to say here, um, so then they that are in the, in the flesh cannot please God. And he makes a final comparison here. He talks about those that live their life to please God, and those that live their life to please themselves. And this is the comparison that Paul makes. He says, those that are lost, they walk after the flesh. They obey the flesh. They fulfill the pleasures of the flesh. And it comes down to this. It's one simple, one simple question we have to ask. In my, in my life, as a Christian, is it my will or is it thy will? That's the question that we have to answer. And that's the question of salvation. Is it my will or is it thy will? What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. This is the path. This is the behavior. This is the example of a Christian. Not perfectly. Not without fault. Not without stumbling along the way. But by and large, whenever you look at your life, what direction are you headed? Are you living your life for yourself? Or are you living your life for God? And Paul is telling us that if you are in Christ... You are free from this defeat of the flesh. You do not have to live being defeated as a Christian. So he talks about those without the Spirit in verses 5 through 8. In verses 9 through 11, he talks about those with the Spirit. He says here in um, verse number 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit which, which dwelleth in you. So in verses 9 through 11, he talks about those that have the spirit. He, in the first previous verse, he talked about those that don't have the spirit. 
They're carnally minded. They walk after the flesh. They please themselves. It's all about what I want. But in verses 9 through 11, he talks about those that have converted, have accepted Christ as their Savior. And whenever that happens, what the Bible says is the Holy Spirit comes inside. That's what the Bible teaches. Those that have the Spirit, the Spirit actually dwells within us. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. It's amazing. We, we truly do not understand as human beings what an amazing gift that is. But that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to dwell inside of us. And that Holy Spirit is there to help us. And, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, you know, you may have, maybe there's, the, the question is maybe like, how do I know if I'm saved or not? How do I know if I'm converted? How do I know if my, my salvation is genuine and sincere? And here's the answer, is the Holy Spirit within you. That's the evidence of salvation. It's not, I prayed a prayer. And that's what a lot of people think. They think, well, I prayed a prayer, and their faith is in their prayer. I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. What you're saying is my faith is in my, my words that I said. That, that's not salvation. This is the evidence of salvation, is the Holy Spirit within you. Is there ever a time where the Holy Spirit leads you away from your own sinful desires to serve God, to live for God, to do things that honor and glorify God? This is the evidence of salvation. It's that it is the Holy Spirit is inside of us and he's convicting us of our sin. And he, and he goes on to say in verse number 11 that those with the Spirit are promised eternal life just as much as Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. That same Spirit that rose from, from the dead lives inside of each and every one of us, if you're saved. Amen. And whenever you pass away from this life, if Jesus Christ tarries his coming, that Holy Spirit will raise you up as well. This is the promise for those that have the Spirit, that this is not the end, that there is life after, and it's a life of eternal life. So we talked about those without the Spirit, those with the Spirit, but there's something better than that. It's those that the Spirit has, not just that we have the Spirit, but the Spirit has us. And that's even a, a, better, a better life than, uh, than just having the Spirit. But the Spirit has me. That means that I am, as much as I can be, yielded to His guidance, yielded to His direction, yielded to what He wants me to do in my life. You see, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that exposed us to salvation. The reason that you're saved here today, if you're saved, is because the Holy Spirit convicted you. He, he showed you that you were lost. He showed you that you can't be good enough to earn salvation. He, he revealed to you through the word, through the preaching of his word, the reading of his word, that you are lost without hope, without God, and that, there, that, there, that our only path to salvation is through Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that taught us that. And so we should be thankful for that. But it's not just the Holy Spirit that exposes us to salvation, but it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to obey. I can't obey in my own ability, my own strength, my own flesh. I will fail. If I'm going to obey, it's going to be through yielding to the Holy Spirit. By saying... Being honest with God and saying, God, this is not what I want to do. My flesh wants something else, but Lord, would you help me? Would you strengthen me? Would you use your Holy Spirit to empower me to obey you and live a life that you want me to live? So the Spirit exposes us to salvation. It empowers us to obey. It enables us to become Christ-like, to become Christ-like. That, that's the end destination for all of us, to be like him, to not be subject to our fickle emotions, to not, be, to not be defeated by our sinful desires, but to be like Jesus Christ, who could walk through this sinful earth, surrounded by sinful men, 
facing a sinful enemy and yet walk in holiness before God. That's, that's, the, that's the desire we should all have as Christians. That we, that we don't allow every little thing that comes across our path to, 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 to shake our faith. But that we can walk before God. It's the spirit that equips us to mortify the flesh. In verse number 13 it says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if, through the spirit, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to fight back against our flesh. To fight back every single day against our sinful thoughts, our sinful motives, our sinful words, our sinful actions. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do that. And then finally, it's the Spirit that accepts us into adoption. In verses 15 through 17. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And this, this word, Abba, Father, is a very intimate way that you would speak to your father. That, that God is not just some old grandpa up on a throne with a long white beard. No, no, he is an intimate father with those that will follow him. It goes on to say, the spirit itself beareth witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also be glorified together. It's the spirit that allows us to be adopted into the family of God. And what a, what a, uh, a marvelous truth that is, that you are a son of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And all the, all the, uh, all the um, uh, access that Jesus Christ has to God, we have the same. Right. Through the Spirit. And this is for those people that not just that we have the Spirit, but the Spirit has us. That we're living in obedience and submission to the Holy Spirit as He guides us, as He reveals His truth to us through God's Word, as He gives us direction in our life. We can obey through the Spirit. So we're freed, up, we're freed from defeat in verses 5 through 17, but we're also free from discouragement in verses 18 through 30. It says in verse number 18, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which should be revealed in us. And so Paul is saying, listen, you, suffering is coming. You, there's no escape from that. And the sooner we all learn that, the better we're going to be. You know, we, we probably need to hear it more often, but life's not fair. I mean, how many times did your parents say that to you growing up? Well, Susie got this and I didn't get that. Well, guess what? Life's not fair. Life's hard. And suffering's on the way. But Paul says, even though suffering comes, we can be free from discouragement. Now, let me just always like to preface this when we talk about these types of things. We talk about depression and, uh, and discouragement. Uh, there, there are legitimate mental health uh, issues that people have. And, and in those situations, uh, I would say that, you, you know, it's good to go talk to a professional, go talk to a doctor, get some help. If you're dealing with legitimate, you know, mental health, chemical type things going on in your life, get some help. But as a Christian, our first response, when we find ourselves discouraged or depressed it should be to look inward into our heart and say are we obedient to our heavenly father yeah uh, uh, god loves you too much to let you enjoy sin and we find ourselves uh, going through suffering and it results in depression and discouragement we should ask ourselves some questions about how we're living as a christian because because suffering is uh, is not optional it's not optional 
Every day is going to be hard. Uh, you know, there's a famous saying, I think the Navy SEALs say it, the only easy day was yesterday. The only easy day was yesterday, people. Every day is going to be hard. You're going to go through suffering. But, call, but Paul gives us some encouragement that you do not have to live. You are free from discouragement. And how can that be? We see here uh, some examples that Paul gives. He, he begins to talk about, uh, verse number 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. What's he talking about here? Verse number 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And what's Paul talking about? What he's talking about, he's talking about creation itself. That creation itself, the created things, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the animals, the, uh, the mountains, the trees, the oceans, all these things that God created, he made them perfect. He made them exactly as they should be. But then mankind corrupted all of it. And since that time, what Paul is teaching is creation itself groaneth and travaileth to be delivered from the corruption that we've introduced into this world, you and I, human beings. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve that did it, it was you and I. If you've committed sin willfully, you've contributed to this problem. All that you see around, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, uh, natural disasters. Isn't it terrible, just, I think it was just yesterday, Afghanistan, a horrible earthquake, they're saying 400 people died. Tragic, tragic. And it happens every, every few weeks, another hurricane or a tornado or a, you know, some other a tsunami or, or, a, or, or all these different types of a, a, a cave collapse and people get trapped. Every single few weeks, something terrible happens. This is the result of the corruption of mankind upon creation. And Paul is saying that creation itself groans for the day when it can be freed from this suffering. In, cre in creation groans, it says, it uses, this, it uses this, uh, this word, it says in verse number 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth. This is talking about being in labor, like a woman being in labor for a child. Now, uh, I've never been in labor. I can't, I can't tell you what that's all about, but it looks bad. It looks pretty painful. I'm just telling you from the outside, look in, it looks like it's not anything I'd ever, I'd ever want to do. However, what I've been told and I'll let you women uh, discuss that it's at length later amongst yourselves. What I've been told is you go through this intense pain, but when the baby shows up, you forget all about it. When that little, <laughs> is that even close? Is that even close? I guess it depends on how traumatic it was, but. Yeah, yeah, then they become a toddler and be like, take it back, take it back. I don't, uh, it wasn't worth it. But when that little baby shows up, the, the pain isn't quite so painful. The labor pains, the, 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 the contractions of the muscles, uh, it's, not quite as, it's not quite as unbearable. And, and, uh, and even like this is the craziest thing, women will go through it and then after a few years they'll say, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah, I mean, yeah. What, the, what, the, what the Bible is saying is that we're going through difficult times, but there's a baby on the way. There's something, there's something good coming. And whenever we get that new experience whenever we're free from all this corruption we'll look back and think man it was worth it it was worth it see creation itself is groaning 
creation is suffering, but not just is there suffering in creation, there's also suffering in Christians in verses 23 through 25. And not only they, talking about creation, the created things, all the animals, all, all, all of nature, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? For if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also help with our infirmities, for we know, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we see that creation is groaning, and now we see that Christians are groaning. And, and what are we groaning for? We're, we're, what are we desiring for? What do we want? Well, he talked about having first the first fruits. We've tasted the first fruits. What is that talking about? It's talking about the moment whenever you got saved. And I don't know what you're experiencing. Everybody's a little bit different. There's no two people that got saved the exact same way in the Bible, okay, as far as their experience. So don't compare your salvation to mine, and I shouldn't compare mine to yours. But I can tell you this. Uh, whenever I got saved, it was, a, it was March of 1992. It was a Wednesday night at church. And I remember I finally, I finally set aside my pride. I finally admitted that I was lost. I came forward and I got saved. And when I went outside that night after church, the stars were just a little bit brighter. The air smelled just a little bit sweeter. There was a, 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 there was a burden that had been lifted off my shoulders that I'd been carrying around for months. I think I've told these guys before, but I was under conviction. And every night before I'd go to bed, I'd say, God, if I'm not saved, would you save me? I knew I was lost, but I didn't want to set aside my pride. And so every night I would pray, Lord, if I'm not saved, would you save me? It just felt worse every time I prayed that prayer. Until finally I came before God humbly, confessing my need for salvation. And I got a taste of those first fruits. I knew, you know what, guys, there's something better than this life. There's something better coming. I've got just a little bit of taste of it, but I want more. And so what Paul is saying is we're going to go through suffering. Suffering is not optional. But as a Christian, we can put our hope. Not in the things we've seen, because Paul's saying, if you can see it, you don't have to hope about it. You know, like I, I could be like, man, I hope I get a bottle of water. I hope I get a bottle of man, I, God, would you please give me a bottle of water? Well, I don't need to hope if I'm holding it, right? But we can hope that we have that future coming for us. We can pray for that because we've not seen it yet. And so we have... The creation has groanings, Christians have groanings, but then it goes on to say about the Spirit's groanings. It says here in uh, verse number uh, 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 30, 26, in that it says, For he maketh intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered. So creation is groaning, Christians are groaning, but also the Spirit is groaning. And what is that talking about? It's saying that Listen, sometimes you go through difficult things, and you're not even sure which way's up. You're not sure which way to go. You're not even sure how to pray to God. But what Paul says is the Spirit's there to make intercession for us, to make those groanings on our behalf, that whenever we come to a point in our life where words can't express our emotions, where words can't express our need, that we can go before God and say, God, would you just help? And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession. And, he, and he's able to communicate things that words can't even express to God. And so we see the Spirit is there to help us in our moral failures. What are these infirmities it's talking about in verse number 27? What are these infirmities? Infirmities are a weakness or a sickness. And the truth is, if you're alive here today, you have some weaknesses and you have some sickness. A sickness of sin. 
uh, a weakness, and there's all different types of weaknesses that people have. God, you know, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like for every strength that God gives, there's a uh, other side of that coin, there's a weakness that goes along with it. We all have weaknesses. We all have shortcomings. We all have blind spots. But the Holy Spirit is there to help us in our moral failures. Whenever we fail, then we have not lived the way that God asked us to. But not just in moral failures, but even in our prayer failures. Whenever we can't even pray the right way. But if we come to God with the right heart, the Holy Spirit can intercede on our behalf. Not just prayer failures, but also planning failures. In verse number 28, what are you talking about? Verse number 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I wonder if you've ever had your plans disappointed. You had some plan that was going to go a certain way, and your plan just gets totally wrecked. Is that the only person that happens to? <laughs> you know, maybe you're excited about some event. This is kind of what happens usually at our house. You know, we'll have, we'll have some kind of like trip planned, a vacation. And in my mind, I'm kind of envisioning I'm almost like a you know the the Griswold dad on National Lampoon's vacation, where you think it's going to be amazing, and then when you get there, the kids are crying and they don't want to walk, and you got to carry them, and they poop their diaper, and all and all your plan has gone away. Right? All, all your dreams, you thought it was going to go one way, and it goes another way. And our plans fail. But Paul says, he says, listen, whenever your plans fail, whenever the path you thought was going to work out, you find out it didn't work out, that's not God working against you. That's God working for you. Verse number, let's read it again. For we know that all things work together for good. Those things are for you, not against you. Whenever your plans got disrupted, whenever your vision or your hopes or your dreams or your aspirations got crushed, that was a good thing. That was God working for you. God knew, listen, if you get that stuff, you're not going to be satisfied. If I give you all those things you want, it's not going to turn out the way that you want. I've got something better for you, but it means I'm going to have to wreck your plans. But we can know as Christians, all things work together for good. That when we have suffering, because suffering is not optional. Whenever suffering comes, we can have the confidence that all things are working together for good. It's there to help us in our planning failures. And then it's there to help us in our development failures. You know, the natural progression of a Christian is to become more Christ-like every day. What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease and he must increase. That's the life of a Christian. Every day, I should try and be more and more like Jesus Christ. But guess what? Sometimes we don't develop the right way. We have... We have uh, some issues. We don't develop the, the way that God wanted us to. But God's made a, a preparation for that. In verse number 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn, am- firstborn among many brethren. That, that God said, listen, you may struggle in this life, but I've already decided you're going to be just like Jesus Christ. That's what we have for us in heaven one day. He said, I've already predestined, I've already determined, I've already planted ahead. I don't care how much you mess up, I don't care how many times you fall on your face, I don't care how many times you feel like you've, you've shamed yourself, or even if you feel like you shamed God, guess what, I've already decided you're going to be just like Jesus Christ one day. That's the promise that we have. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of God. That's the promise that we have. And so we can be free from discouragement. That when life gets you down, when, life, when things don't work out, when your plans get disrupted... God's got it under control. All those things are working for you, not against you. And then finally, we see in verses 31 through 39, we are free from fear as a Christian. One of the more more well-known portions of Scripture, 
What shall we, verse number 31, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God's already given you the most precious gift you could ever have. He's not holding anything back from you. He'll give you everything that you need because he's already given you his son. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long and are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yea, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So finally he says, you can be free from fear because God's not going to turn his back on you. God's not going to forsake you. And he gives us some things that we don't have to worry about separating us from the love of God. He says in verses 38 through 39, he says, death will not separate you. When you die, that's not the end. And whenever you die, you will not be separated from God. You may be separated from your family for a period of time, and so you're able to rejoin them in, in glory one day, but you will not be separated from God. Not only will death not separate you, but life will not separate you from God. What is that? It's everything. Life is everything. It's everything you've gone through your entire life, every single day. Everything you've ever gone through, anything you will go through, none of it will separate you from God. Not just will death not separate and life not separate, but he goes on to say that angels and demons will not separate, nor angels, nor principalities. That's what he's talking about, angels and demons. And these are powerful, supernatural creatures. You read the Old Testament, there's angels that come through and they kill hundreds of thousands of people in one night. Angels are powerful things, but they can't separate you from God. Amen. And neither can a demon. Principalities. He goes on to say, uh, nor things present, nor things to come. Look, time can't separate you. Yesterday's things can't separate you. Today's things can't separate you. Tomorrow's things can't separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He goes on to say in verse number 39, nor height nor depth. He's talking about heaven and hell. He said there's nothing in heaven that's going to separate you from God, and there's nothing in hell that will separate you from God. You are free from the fear of being separated from God. And then he goes on to say, nor any other creature He's, he's, taking about, he's talking about all creation. What Paul is saying is if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are free from condemnation. There is no sentence waiting for you. You are free from discouragement. You don't have to worry about the sufferings of this life and how, how things are going to work out. You can be free from that. You can trust and know that God's got everything taken care of and all things are working together for good. And finally, you can be, have the freedom from fear because you'll never be separated from God. And so Romans chapter 8 is an important book for us. And I would encourage you to go back to this chapter again and again. It's an encouragement. It's a help. And, and if, you, if you understand what this, if you understand what Romans chapter 8 is teaching us, if you understand it, uh, you'll never doubt your salvation. You'll never doubt God's love for you. And you'll never doubt God's plan for your life.